This is a Federal News Network podcast. The COVID-19 pandemic produced a bumper crop of almost everything it touched, including research. One authoritative database reports that 4% or more of all scientific research published last year had to do with COVID. And you guessed it, that produced data, lots and lots of data. Now the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory is trying to find meaning in a murky sea of data. And with more on that project, data scientist Kiraj Kumar. Mr. Kumar, good to have you on. Thank you for the invitation. First of all, how did this project end up at the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, of all places? Yeah, great question. As you know, when the pandemic started, we all started learning about what can we do through data science, through the knowledge that we already know about SARS-CoV-2 or their related coronaviruses. And one of the things that we do at Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, along with other national laboratories, that we have a DOE-based user facility, which can be used to achieve fundamental understanding of various things which may not be available in the private sector. So the way it works is we try to gain knowledge from the existing data that how can we use our artificial intelligence, computational modeling tools to understand the kind of a protein structures you know, involved in SARS-CoV-2 genomes. As you know, SARS-CoV-2 is made up of 27 different proteins. Understanding the function of those proteins, how the inhibitor binds, how to develop sort of fundamental understanding of antiviral candidates which can act as an inhibitor for those protein was the first step for making progress in that direction. So that's how we were able to bring these data science along with experimental validation projects to the PNNL. And how did you obtain the data? Did you just simply get it from open sources and then ingest it into the lab? Yes, we collected data from a public platform along with we did generated synthetic data using our artificial intelligence machine learning tools. It's more called generating a decoys or a similar 3D structures of therapeutic candidate that can be screened against the given targeted protein, which is of interest. So to answer your question, we did gather data from public platform, but we also generated it here at Pacific Northwest National Laboratory. And do you store it locally? Do you store it in your supercomputer or is it in a commercial cloud, all of this data? We do have a high performance computing here at the laboratory. So we store all of our data in supercomputer. And at the same time, we have DOE-based user facilities, which is like directly funded high-performance computing from DOE, and we use massive computing resources, not only to store data, but to run our models, perform physics-based modeling to understand that data. And you're trying to learn more about the proteins and the meaning of all of this and to get some answers about how it's all constructed. You're a data scientist. How do you know what questions to apply to this data? Because those would seem to need to come from someone medical. Right. The project that we were working in, we were collaborating with experimentalists who are running some experiments in the laboratory, as well as some medicinal chemists who were solving those 
characterization of the protein or trying to predict the 3D structure of the protein in the lab. So in the beginning, we knew there is existing 3D structures, but not for the SARS-CoV-2, for other SARS-CoV proteins. So we can utilize that information in order to predict the structure of critical candidate for SARS-CoV-2. And those were the questions we had in the beginning. How can we use efficiently our data scientists, data science tools to predict the structure just from the sequence, you know, because at that time in the beginning, we did not have the 3D structure that can be used as a protein target to design antiviral candidate, you know, at least computationally, as well as using some of our data science tools. We're speaking with Niraj Kumar. He's a data scientist at the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory. Were you able to get answers in time? Because now the vaccines are out and they are predicated on knowing something of the mechanics of all of this to be able to work. Yes, we were able to get some fundamental understanding of the target protein that we were working on. One of our goal is always when we develop data science tools or a modeling tools to accelerate scientific discovery through fundamental and applied science that can help public and private sector to utilize those tools. But at the same time, kind of a really trying to understand how that protein function, you know, what is its role within the genome, you know, or when it interacts with the other protein carrier, how does it function? So that was our goal to understand the function, structure, and dynamics of those proteins while making antiviral candidates. So I think we got to the point where we were like, oh, we understand this particular protein target through this research. And from a computational standpoint, was the data that you gathered mostly complete? Was it mostly in a format that was usable? Or from what I've read of the project, it was kind of messy and you had to do some cleanup. You know, data is always messy. You can't use the raw data collected from public platform or coming from instrument or coming from measurement. You have to do a data cleaning, data munging in order to make it usable for the machine learning tools or modeling tools that you have been trying to train with that data. So there is a various steps involved in cleaning the data in order to use it the way we would like to use it for the AI tools. So that's the expensive step in the data scientist. If you don't understand what data type means and how you can represent that data type and extract the knowledge from the data through machine learning, then you won't be able to answer the question that you have in mind while building those or using those data from different platforms. And what is the status of the project at this point now that, again, we are fairly late in the game here and the vaccines, the fight is over who takes it and who doesn't take it? So we are in a stage where we were working on to understand really the fundamental aspects of the protein involved in SARS-CoV-2 and their function. I believe we have made significant progress in understanding their function, how it interacts with the small molecule candidate. But there are also other pieces that we were working on, kind of a, their dynamics, you know, using long range molecular modeling simulation 
which utilize high performance computing that we have available through DOE platform, which may not be available in a public platform. So that's one of our goal. And those simulation modeling tools can always be used to build a future data science tools that could be utilized when something like this happens in the future. So be prepared for the future. You never know what are the surprises. So that's where we are. And it looks like you have learned a lot about the applications of artificial intelligence in this whole field. Yes, the application of artificial intelligence is humongous in every aspect of medicinal chemistry, computational chemistry. It basically helps you to expedite day-to-day job while trying to understand the protein structure, function, or other sort of things. It cannot solve everything, but make your jobs a little bit accelerated in a way where you can make a decision on the fly or make your tools automated so that you are not doing the routine work. Let's hope if SARS COVID number 20 comes along, we'll be prepared. (laughs) Absolutely. I think we would be better prepared if something like this comes in in the future, because lesson learned, we will have more data very well curated data to extract knowledge, to extract pattern, to build robust model to make a decision in terms of therapeutic design. Not only computationally through data science tools, but also validation through robotic system in the experimental lab would expedite things in the future. Niraj Kumar is a data scientist at the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything, and it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Uh, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life, And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? 
my style has been quite con consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from sea to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Um, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up. Uh, make decisions. Uh, do what you think is right. And you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and um, his his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, 
um, from C to C suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, And I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And and, uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, During my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online.